Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. And as we go to Acts this morning, we'll, uh, we'll continue to learn and to discuss the events of the early church and how it brought us to the place where we stand here today. All right, Acts chapter 1. So last week we started our study in Acts and we did a bit more of an introduction and we did get to the place where we're, we're promised of the Holy Spirit in verse 8 and how the Holy Spirit will come upon us and empower us. But we'll get through, I would think, the duration of chapter 1 here today. But I'll do a little bit of a review here as we begin. Now, the book of Acts is written by Luke, uh, same author of the gospel uh, that's ascribed to his name under, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written to Theophilus, Theophilus, whose name means lover of God. We have in Acts an account of the early church and its establishing, an account of the apostles themselves, namely Peter and Paul, as well as an account of the Holy Spirit and its equipping, its equipping and empowering of these leaders to build the church. And as we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, that these individuals would turn the world upside down. These men, the apostles, they were world changers. They were world changers. In fact, Christians, those who are truly empowered by the Holy Spirit and living their lives in the way God intended, well, we've been turning the world upside down ever since. And we've still got the opportunity to do that today. This is what we do. As Christians, we are called to be set apart. Called to be set apart. We were created to be different. To be different. There is no greater compliment to a Christian than when the world is scratching their heads and wondering, what's wrong with you? When an unbeliever says that they wouldn't have done it that way, they would have made a different decision, you can be confident that you're on the right track. We are to be aliens in this world. And there may be times when the world's response to us suggests that we may in fact truly look like extraterrestrials to them by the looks on their faces. Right? Acts is somewhat a book of beginnings. Just as Genesis serves as the account of creation and the beginning of time for the human race, so Acts serves as somewhat of our origin story as the church. And the beauty of it is, is that Acts isn't done. It's a book of the Bible that ends in chapter 28, and it sort of leaves you hanging, not in a bad way. Because what we see at the end of Acts is that Luke's account of the church is coming to an end. He closes it out. But in reality, there's an Acts chapter 29 and beyond still unfolding here today. Sadly, too many churches have decided to leave the foundations of the church behind. Having sacrificed God's design for the church and the power of the Holy Spirit on the altar of political correctness in, in the name of trying to draw more individuals into the church to get more numbers. But as has already been stated, when there starts to be too many similarities between the church and the world, you then start to wonder who's changing whose world. We are called to be world changers, and we see such great examples who have gone before us in the book of Acts. The book that also gives us insight in 
to how the gospel got to Rome. Set within Jerusalem in the days following Jesus' resurrection for 40 days, Jesus had been with them, teaching them. He'd been seen by many, providing proof of his resurrection from the dead. Shortly before his ascension to heaven, Jesus reassures them of the promise of the Holy Spirit, that I will not leave you alone. In fact, not only that, but he says it's necessary for me to go. It's necessary for me to go so that the Holy Spirit can come and to work in you and through you. The Comforter, the one that will empower them, empower them to be the best possible Christians they could be? Possibly. I suppose that was a natural byproduct of it. Was it to empower them to be the best at, at reading their Bibles and serving one another? Well, once again, perhaps fruit of that. It would no doubt give them and give us an edge in that regard in our Christian walk. The Holy Spirit, though, we read, would come to empower us to live out our faith and bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. To be radical world changers. To be effective in the ministry that God has called us to. It's the same Holy Spirit that empowers us to change the world today. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for your word this morning. The book of Acts, as we turn to it, what an incredible account of how those who have gone before us, Lord, were empowered to establish your church on this earth. Lord, we can learn so much, glean so much, and still, Lord, be inspired today in the same way. The, the, the work continues, Lord. You have tarried in your return such that it should tell us and compel us, Lord, to continue to do the work that you called us to more than 2,000 years ago. Father, bless our time of study here this morning. Help us, Lord, to receive it. Help us to understand it, Lord. Help us to apply it to our lives such that just like Peter and Paul and the apostles who've gone before us, Lord, turned the world upside down, that we might continue to be a body of believers that's radical in this community and in this world. Lord, turning this world upside down in the name of Jesus Christ. Helping others, helping those who are lost to see the, the truth in the Word of God, to see the love that is only found in, in Jesus Christ our Lord. And through the power of the Spirit, Lord, that they would recognize their own sinfulness, Lord, and their own need for a Savior, that we could be used to draw men to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, do an awesome work here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start back in at verse 1, just for some review. Chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until that day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus was seen. There, was, there were multiple accounts given of, of having seen Jesus and being able to testify then to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he was seen by many during the 40 days, and he spent time with the apostles talking about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He was preparing his disciples for the ministry that they were about to go into, making sure that they understood what it was that they were to do, how they were to do it, and to have thorough understanding of the word of God. And what we'll see here later in this chapter is that that really is the case for, for Peter in particular. Peter, who was such a knucklehead, Peter, who operated under, if you don't know what to say, just say something, which is a little counterintuitive to most of us, right? 
But yet Peter was passionate. Peter desired to be such a man of God. He wanted to be a leader. He wanted to be involved. And the cool thing is, as we'll see later in chapter 1, is that Peter began to have a tremendous understanding of the Word of God and the Scripture. As he gave a challenge to the disciples after Jesus' ascension to choose someone to fill the spot left behind by Judas. We see him start to reference Scripture. And you can see how the Holy Spirit in this time with Jesus gave him understanding to start to lay hold of that leadership position that he was called to. In verse 4 we read, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And so we see here within this portion of Scripture, as we discussed last week, that there was still some misunderstanding on the part of the apostles. They just couldn't seem to let go of the idea that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom on earth at this time. It was such a desperate plea on their behalf. It was something that was so important to them and had been for from the beginning. It was something that for them was so much of a letdown when they witnessed Jesus being crucified upon the cross that they thought everything that we had believed and hoped in had fallen apart. And of course then with the resurrection of Jesus there was this renewed hope. How glorious of a hope that their savior was resurrected from the dead. That he had victory over death. Yet there was still this thing that they couldn't let go. Jesus, you can't leave us behind and keep these wicked people in in power. They were so tied to the idea that Jesus was going to overthrow the government, that he was going to establish his kingdom on earth at that time, that they just they had to ask one more time. And and we're that same way. We can we can criticize the disciples. We can say, Oh, you guys, you should have known. Right? But we do the same thing. We have such desires in our life that we want to see God fulfill. We have so many plans, so many aspirations, so many things that based off of the word of God, we go, oh, well, God would do that in my life. Think of what I could do here. Think of what I could do here. Imagine if God just came in and wiped these people out. How much more peaceful this would be. What would happen here? What would happen there? But the reality is, is God's plans are not our plans. God's ways are not our ways. The Word of God says that just as His ways are higher than the earth, so are His. So are His plans and His ways, right? We don't want to think of God as this giant guy in the sky just looking down on us, right? This analogy is not intended to paint that picture. But one picture that does always help me to understand, anyone ever had a a little labyrinth thing with the marble in it, right? Or have you ever been in a corn maze? Anybody ever been to a corn maze? We'll go that route instead. Yeah, we got some corn maze folks out there. All right. Are they difficult? Yeah. Why? You don't know where you're going. The cheaters will put somebody on their shoulders, right? Get up there. You've got to check it out. Why? Because it gives you a perspective, right? Well, we have to understand when we get stuck and, and, and we say, well, God, why won't you show me this? And why I don't understand this? And I'm frustrated about this. And you, you're supposed to be building the kingdom now. We're in that labyrinth, right? We're in that maze, and we can only see maybe left or right. I don't know what to do. And incidentally, we'll, we'll have here in, the, in chapter 1 today a little bit of, of an understanding of how to discern the Spirit, how we need to understand God's will. 
And that's how we go through our walk with him, is there's times when we need to just surrender, and we need to pray, and we need to wait, and we need to, okay, Lord, lead, guide. Understanding that God sees it all along, right? He knows that finish point. He knows the end, and he knows exactly how to get there. And he does desire to guide and direct and lead. But sometimes we are so stubborn and so frustrated, and we can't see the, the forest through the trees, right? That we just ask these questions, and, and, and the response is, that's not for you to know right now. You just need to trust me. There is so much that the disciples wanted to know. Imagine spending time with Jesus, Son of the Most High God, Savior of the world, being personally groomed to take His story to the ends of the earth. You'd want to know some things, wouldn't you? You'd want to know. You'd have lots of questions. We talk oftentimes about, oh, I can't wait to get an answer to this question when I get to heaven. And, this, and, and what about this? And what about that? Right? There's lots of things we want to know. But both for them and for us, the message is sometimes wait and trust. Wait and trust. That's what a big part of faith is all about, is it not? Waiting and trusting. This is part of what changing the world is all about. This is the behavior that sometimes causes people to look at you like you have three heads. right? Because in their minds, in their flesh, they're thinking, right now you should be in a panic You should be panicked, and you should be doing everything you can right now to fix this situation and do something. But you're just sitting there, patient, waiting. What is wrong with you, right? Because we know, we understand. God has told us through the Spirit, wait, trust, be patient. This is something that we as Christians need to learn to understand. And sometimes, sometimes we're too stubborn, and so God gives us a lot of practice, right? He gives us a lot of practice. Wait and trust. Verse 8, but you shall receive power, Gail Irwin. Anybody know Gail Irwin? Yeah, it's just a couple. we got to introduce you guys to some Gail Irwin. Big guy, suspenders. Right? He loves to talk about this Holy Spirit. And when he talks about the Holy Spirit, he talks about power. Yeah, some of you jumped right there. Yeah, Every time, power. He loves to say it. Every time I read this, I think of Gail Irwin. Why does he like to say it that way? Because in the original language, it's dunamis power. It's what we get dynamite from. Dynamite power. An incredible force. An explosion of power. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is where we ended last week, and I want to make sure that we go through this again to have a proper understanding of what I believe, what Calvary Chapel believes, the Word tells us about the Holy Spirit. This is, in fact, a Calvary Chapel distinctive. We don't spend a ton of time talking about things that are very specific to Calvary Chapel. But this is an area that that we know is talked about throughout the church, And, and it's on both ends of the spectrum, the power of the Holy Spirit. Some want nothing to do with it, and they think it was for a time past. Some want everything to do with it. And at Calvary Chapel, we absolutely believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe it is essential and necessary and viable and active and powerful still today. But we believe there's a balance. And we also believe that there is a unique relationship that Christians have with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to make sure that we understand this foundational truth. We believe that there is an experience of the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And we believe that that empowering, that experience, is distinct and separate from the indwelling 
of the Spirit that takes place at conversion. And I believe that we see examples of this. It's not just something that we believe because we say, well, that sounds good. I do believe that we see examples of this within the Word of God, which, of course, always needs to be our standard. And we see examples of this, we will, through our study of Acts, but we see it elsewhere in the New Testament as well. We believe that there is a threefold relationship with the Holy Spirit. We read in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. In verse 17, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We see there two distinct relationships that we can have with the Holy Spirit, one where He dwells with us and one where He dwells in us. And so the first that we believe of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is dwelling with someone prior to their conversion, convincing them of the sin in their life and His righteousness. We read in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Once again in John chapter 6, verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is the first, we believe, of the relationships that someone has with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling with you, coming alongside of you. Those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have been drawn by the Spirit. The Spirit has been abiding with them helping them to understand their need of a Savior, their own sinfulness, and their desire to repent and be forgiven. We don't just figure that out on our own. In our own sinful flesh, in our own condition, we don't just wake up to that, we believe. But rather, the Holy Spirit is giving us an understanding of that. And you see that happen so often in the lives of a believer. And someone who has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that prior to that, there was this progressive understanding. The Spirit was giving them an understanding. Lights were starting to come on. They were starting to go through the Word. They were listening to, to teaching. They were listening to the witnessing of a friend. And, and slowly but surely, it began to, to make more sense to them. And it's so exciting when you are witnessing to somebody. And, and you know, it's great when it happens just like that, right? At least in your interaction with them, knowing that, that, that God has maybe been at work there prior to that. But in either case, it's so fun to see somebody who doesn't yet know the Lord kind of coming, and they're figuring it out, and they're figuring it out. And all of a sudden, poof, wait a second, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. If I don't do this, I'm going to hell. Right? There's just this reality, this understanding of, of i got to get right with the Lord. i gotta, uh, I got to allow Him to change my life. I need forgiveness. You see, it's the work of the Spirit that's doing that. Then, at conversion, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we receive the Holy Spirit. Now that the, the Spirit dwells in us, you accept Jesus Christ into your heart. The Holy Spirit comes into you. 
then he takes away that sin. Right? We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, now we're talking about a believer who has received Jesus Christ. And, and we're reminded here that you were bought at a price. And no longer is your body your own, but it belongs to him. And he dwells in you. So this is the second of the threefold relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. So once saved, the Spirit dwells in us. And then we believe that the indwelling of the Spirit, that it equips us to begin having victory over sin and flesh in our lives, transforming us into the likeness of Him. So do you understand that, Christian? The Holy Spirit has come alongside you. It's abided with you. It's been with you to convict you of your need for a Savior. You receive Jesus Christ. Now the Holy Spirit indwells you and now starts to equip you. It gives you understanding of the Word of God. It gives you the ability to have victory over sin, victory over your flesh, victory over the things that you may not have been able to deal with in the past. You weren't able to, uh, you know, maybe the Holy Spirit was convicting you and there were things in your life, but you thought, oh, I just can't, I can't kick this. I can't be this habit, right? But then you become saved and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you now starts to give you the power to overcome those things, to resist temptation, to walk with him. His word says that we are then transformed into the likeness of him. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are His image bearers. This is how we were created, in His likeness, the image of God. It says in Genesis that in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Do you know that we bear the image of God? And that's why it is so sad today in the culture in which we live of this identity crisis that people have. Never before has there been such an attack on the image of God, the indwelling of the Spirit, we are further transformed into His likeness. So not only at the beginning of time are we created in His likeness, but when you receive the Holy Spirit and it dwells within you, you are further transformed into His likeness. Now, does that mean that then physically you start to be transformed? No, when we were created, we were made in His image. Now, yes, when you get saved, things about your outward appearance do start to change a little bit. There's a sense of you're different. You're acting different. You smile a little more. You're friendly, right? You, whatever the case may be, people look at you and they're like, what's up with this guy? Right? He's you know, going to walk around like this. Ah, and growled at everybody, right? And now you're like, praise God, right? There's a difference in, in, your, in your demeanor, your countenance, right? But what, what's happening here, what we hear of in being transformed in the same image from glory to glory is more about our inward likeness sanctification, the process of, of being set apart, power to have victory over sin and temptation, victory over death as he had. Do you understand that today? That the same power that was in Jesus Christ, that same power that raised him from the dead is in you? If you are a believer today, if you are a Christian, that that same power is dwelling inside of you? Do you understand that? When your alarm goes off in the morning and you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to get out of bed right now. It's too early. Right? You need to start to change your mind to think, 
Hallelujah! The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in me right now. And I can get out of bed and I can go and face this day and I can conquer things in the name of Christ. Do we understand that on a regular basis? Holy smokes, Christian. There is a whole lot of power inside of us. Men. Maybe, maybe women too, right? You, you like engines? You like cars? You like things with power, right? You remember Tim Allen in the show Home Improvement? Right? He walked around and he, he always wanted to make the tool bigger and more powerful. And he'd do this, oh, oh, oh you know. He wanted, and every time he just screwed it up because it just was too much power. But that concept doesn't exist with us. There's no such thing as too much power when it comes to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and what God wants to do through you. We are equipped. We are equipped. Now, what people have started to debate in light of this understanding is they started to say, well, okay, natural logic then would lead me to understand that at some point it's, it's possible for me to achieve sinless perfection in this life. Right? If you're saying that the Holy Spirit inside of me gives me victory over sin and death in my flesh, and I should never doubt, I should never question, I should never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, then that would lead me to believe that I can go ahead and I can just keep working and working and working and working to become the ultimate Christian. Well, there may be some elements of, of this that seem logical in that regard. We have been equipped for everything, for life and godliness. But what I would say to that is, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, that power that's within you, well, it, it has allowed us to become victorious Christians, yes. Perfect Christians, no. No. Not perfect, sinless Christians. The Holy Spirit gives us power to resist our flesh, but our flesh is still there. Right? We still live in a fallen world. We still have to deal with this, right? That time will come. That time will come when God's going to transform this. When he's going to give me ultimate victory over my flesh. When he is going to transform me into that individual that he created me to be. You see, yes, we have the ability to have victory over sin and death. We have that, that power that's going to help us in those difficult times. But our flesh is still there. It, I'm still going to approach situations imperfectly. Right? I'm still going to have those moments of anger and frustration. I'm still going to have those moments of misunderstanding when I make a bad decision. Right? But it's, the, it's then to the power of the Holy Spirit that helps me to go, you know what, I, I screwed that up. And to go and apologize and to make it right. right? To repent. Through the power of the Spirit, I can minimize those times. Right? Recognize my errors sooner. I can live in such a way that when the Lord calls me home, I can be confident that I fought a good fight. I ran the race. But sinless perfection, no. There is only one, and his name is Jesus. And then there is a third relationship that we can have with the Holy Spirit. The relationship that we read of in Acts that empowers us to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. It's this relationship, sadly, that is lacking for many Christians today. As we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word upon here is epi. 
E-P-I. And it functions the same way as that word in the English language today. And it can be translated upon, over, and even overflow. I tend to like overflow. Most pastors I know like that term overflow. We like to translate it that way. Because you see, believer, the Spirit has drawn you to Himself, has given you an understanding of your sin and God's righteousness. You've repented of that sin. You've received forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life, giving you the ability to understand the Word of God, to have victory over your flesh, to be transformed, but for you to be empowered to truly reach the world around you, for you to be empowered in the work that God has called you to, you need the empowering, overflowing of the Spirit to see others transformed in the name of Christ. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39 says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the overflowing is necessary for effectiveness in ministry. This is what is important to impact the lives of people that you are called to serve. And I would emphasize that this is for all of us, as each and every one of you have a ministry. This isn't about me talking this morning and saying, well, this is necessary for me to have an effective ministry here so that all of you can benefit. That's part of it, and that's absolutely true. But this is for each and every one of you, because God has given you a ministry, whether you recognize it or not. God uses you, whether you recognize that or not. And he desires to use you greater in those fields of influence that you have. And you need the empowering of the Holy Spirit, the overflowing of the Holy Spirit, to be effective in those areas. At Calvary Chapel Northeast, we are what? Making what? Disciples of Christ. Absolutely. We are making disciples of Christ. So how do we do that? Well, we teach the Word, right? That's foundational. We've got to make sure we teach the Word. We share the gospel. We disciple people using the same word. We help people to grow in their faith, right? Provide things that equip them and support them and help them to grow. And then this idea of going and making disciples means that the church then has to, we have to know him first, we have to grow in him, and then we go out and we make disciples of Jesus Christ. But as we desire to do this very work and impact the world around us, We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit because we cannot do it effectively without. We can muscle through it. It's not that Christians are entirely ineffective, absent of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're still a Christian. But this is the third part of the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit that empowers that Christian to be effective. The empowering of the Spirit such that it overflows from within us. And then when we see a life transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be so excited about witnessing such a miracle, but we can also know then that it wasn't about us, but about the power of the Spirit working in us and through us. That's when you know that God is using you. When you have these experiences such that you walk away and you say, how in the world did that happen? That wasn't me. How how did I do that? When you see uh, divine appointments, Things that pop up in your life. And it's just, it's like, Lord, how, how, did this, how did you work this all out? So how do you get this empowering of the Holy Spirit? Well, you ask for it. You receive it. This is where many Christians differ on how all of that goes down. Okay? You've got the, the hyper-Pentecostal side, right? Charismania, as I and others refer to it, right? And that's way, way over here, okay? It's an, it's an extreme 
right? And then you've got some on the other side, and it's like, don't you dare even talk about that. What's well, here? Why can't we talk about it, right? The, the hyper-Pentecostal side would want to uh, create an environment in which you wait, and 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 you wait, until a supernatural, physical, visible, sometimes, experience starts to unfold, where you're slain of the Spirit, right? Where it's, boom, something hits you, and you may even drop to the ground, okay? Now here, listen, I'm not saying that that can't happen, that that can't be of the Lord, right? I, who am I to stand up here and say what God is going to do and what God isn't going to do? But for me to stand up here and to say that that is absolutely essential and what is required for people to be empowered and baptized in the Holy Spirit, no, I don't see evidence of that. If that were the case, and there is a whole lot of really effective Christians that do not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that to me is inconsistent. So to suggest that there needs to be this environment where some crazy radical things are happening, right, is not essential for a Christian to receive the empowering, the anointing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, People want to see, oftentimes, and, and this is even independent of the Pentecostal movement, but people want to see, and that's the first mistake, is that we always want to see. We have to see, right? That should remind us of how finite we are, of how limited we are, like horses with blinders on. We've got to see it. We've got to see it, right? But people want to see Pentecost happen all over again, right? It's like for us to really be moved of the Spirit, there has to be this incredible supernatural thing that goes on. And sometimes God gives you that. Sometimes you have that experience, but when that's not happening, do you just, okay, well, it's, there's nothing going on here. God's not using me. I, you know, I'll just wait until he comes back, right? No, that's, that's not what the Word says. We saw that Pentecost happened once. It happened once, right? I mean, we will talk next week in chapter 2 about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. And there was a, there was a mighty rushing wind. There was an experience. There was something that happened. But we don't see where then that happened time and time and time again. Because why? Because the Holy Spirit arrived. He's there. He's still here today. I trust in the finished work of the cross. And that when Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come, and we see and read that it did, and I believe that it's here. And that we just need to receive it, just like we received Christ. And we can pray for the Holy Spirit, for a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit, each and every day. For a fresh outpouring. And so the question is, do you have the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit in this way? Well, how do you know? I've asked, I've asked, how do I know? Well, that's another area, right? Well, then you immediately speak in tongues. Do you know that when I was early in the faith, I just sat and I prayed every night, Lord, let me speak in tongues. Come on, Lord. Do it. And I'd wait and I'd wait. I got nothing, right? I... There are incredibly gifted, godly men, those that have gone before me that have said, I never spoke in a tongue. It just never happened, right? Is that what it's all about? Is that how you know? No, that's not how you know. And that's not essential. There's a friend of mine. He was at one of these Terry services, right? He went with a friend. It always seems to happen that way. I went with a friend, right? And they told, they said, son, do you speak in tongues? Have you received the, the power of the Holy Spirit? He said, well, I, I don't speak in tongues, but yeah, I, I, I received the baptism of the Spirit. I'm empowered by the Spirit, so you don't speak in tongues? No, all right, we're not. Nobody's leaving here till you do. 45 minutes, everybody's circled around this guy. <laughs> and he's like, oh man, the whole time he's just like, I don't know what's going to happen, Lord. What do I do? And finally, he just called. He just said, I'm out, guys. I'm out. <laughs> you know. And everybody tried to keep it going. He's like, no, I got to go. <laughs> 
right? I mean, and he left just with this sense of, Lord, that didn't seem of you, right? And I'm not making a I don't know who those people were. I don't know where it was. All I know is kind of a funny story that this guy tells. But I don't see evidence of that within the Word of God. How do I know? From my perspective, it's no different than how we assess and, and simply make an assessment, right? We never know. But whether an individual is a believer, and we look for what in their lives? Fruit, right? We look for fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? We look for fruit. A Christian is known by the fruit that they bear, right? I should see you then demonstrating those things in your life, and I should see you in the Word, in prayer, or maybe I don't see you, but I at least have confidence. I know, okay, this person's articulating to me Scripture. They're talking about their prayer life. There are a number of different things that we should see in the life of a believer that help us to go, that person seems like a believer to me, right? The same is true in the empowering of the Spirit, It's the empowering of the Spirit that gifts us with the ability to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, some of you may be sitting here today and saying, well, I haven't received the Holy Spirit then because I'm not the next evangelist. I don't feel like I have that ability. We know through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of the number of different gifts of the Spirit, right? And it's here that we see that the gifts differ. They differ according to the individual, But what is so special about those gifts is that the same Spirit works in all of them such that they can do wonderful things within the body of believers. Now concerning chapter 12, verse 1, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus as accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. You see, the same way we can look at the fruit in a in an individual's life to assess whether or not we see them as saved is the same way we can assess in our own lives whether or not we have that empowering of the Spirit. Is God using us in different ways through the gifts that He's given us to minister the body of Jesus Christ? When someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I've just been praying about this, and I don't know if this is for you or not, but I just want to share with you this is what the Lord's put on my heart, and they share it with me, and I say that's exactly what I needed to hear, or that happens in reverse, right? That is evidence to me that somebody's walking in the Spirit, that they've been empowered by the Spirit, that God is using them to the benefit of their brothers and sisters, right? That He has gifted them with a word of knowledge, that they have the ability to go to the Word, and that God puts people on their minds that they can go and they can speak to and they can encourage. But there are a number of different gifts, But what I don't want you to leave here with today is this thought that you have to somehow do something super, super natural, super powerful, that you have to find this long lost pool and swim to the bottom and get the thing that's sitting at the bottom and bring it back and you got to go on your quest, right? No. The Holy Spirit is here and you can receive it. You can pray to receive it. You can say, God, I need to be baptized in your spirit. I need to be empowered by your spirit. You've called me to a work, Lord, and I know that in and of myself, I cannot do that. I need your equipping. 
and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we see then in verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I would, looking up in awe, thinking, what just happened? Mind blown. I mean, think of all the things that have been happening over the last month and a half in, in these guys' lives. And now this, right? My goodness. And two men stood by in white apparel. Do you know who they were? Two men in white apparel. That's, that's what we know, okay? There's a lot of hypotheses about who these guys were. Seems logical to us to go, it was two men in white apparel. I'm assuming they were angels. That seems like a logical conclusion. So you've got two angels standing there talking to them, right? I'd be, right? They'd have to wake me up from it too. Hey, why do you just stand there looking up? Because I don't know what to do, right? And, and so they say to the disciples who are standing there looking up, why, why do you stand here looking up like this? He's going to come back the same way in this same spot. And so this wasn't so much an encouragement to them. It wasn't necessarily, hey guys, hey, it's okay, he's coming back. What, what I see this as was a call to action. The angels were saying, stop standing around, staring into heaven, go get to work. Jesus left them with the commandment. He's, he, he told them what they were supposed to do. He says, I've got to go, but when I do, the Holy Spirit's going to come. In fact, I need to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come, and it's going to empower you to be witnesses. And so when he ascends into heaven and the two angels are there and they're saying, why are you guys standing here looking up into heaven? They're saying, go, quit standing around, get to work. As Christians, we need to be looking for Christ's return. Yes, that is in the word of God. We should be looking. We should be aware of, we should be mindful, but we also need to be busy about his business. He's empowered us to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. And if we simply stand there looking up, awaiting his return, we're going to miss out and fail in the mission that he gave us. The incredibly important work that he's called us to. This is, is, is an indictment on Christians today in some way. This is one of the big issues that we've got to be busy about his business. We're, we're too often busy about the details of the church and not busy enough about the details of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so why? Why do we do this? Well, there's an important second part of this verse, and it's because he's coming back. He will come back. He will come back in the same way in which he left, in the same spot in which he left. He will come back. And so there is work for us to do. Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that today? Prophecy is fulfilled. Events and circumstances are aligning. Jesus is coming back. You can join us on Wednesday night starting in April as we dive into Revelation and we learn more about the events of the last days. First Wednesday in April starts that study. I'm terrified. We're getting close. It's exciting. And so the disciples leave. And remember, they were told to tarry. They were told to wait. And they needed to wait on the Holy Spirit. So what do you do when you are preparing for a mighty work of God, but you need to wait before you make any decisions? Pray. Well done. In verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer 
and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. See, the disciples were obedient to what Jesus told them to do. That's the first thing. Well done, disciples. You're finally starting to get it. Jesus said, do this, we'll go do this. And furthermore, they stuck together and they prayed. See, the disciples are in obedience. They are in fellowship and they are in prayer. Obedience, fellowship, prayer. This should always describe those who are seeking the Lord. You want to know the will of God? You're trying to understand what God has for you? And be obedient, be in fellowship, and pray. The last thing you should do when you're struggling to discern the will of God is to be disobedient, to put yourself in isolation, and to stop praying. That will get you nowhere. Folks, we have to learn to be more vulnerable, to pray with one another, to seek the Lord together, to be in fellowship together, and to pray. We have to learn to do battle together. Look at Matthew chapter 16 when when Jesus is addressing Peter in verse 17. Matthew 16, verse 17 through 19. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, Peter had declared that Jesus was the Christ. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, the gates of hell shall not prevail against this church. Sometimes it seems like the church is on the run, like the gates have been breached, and then we're on the defensive. We can look around our world today and say, whoa, I'm afraid. What's going to happen? What's going on here? What's going on here? Every single person and entity that we put our hope in other than Jesus Christ will let you down. Plain and simple. We've got to take an offensive position. We've got to run into battle together. We've got to understand and and accept and proclaim that we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and to trust and to know that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. We've got to start acting like we're on the winning side because we are. Look at these disciples too. Prior to this, they were a dysfunctional group, right? Let me be first. Let me sit at your right hand. Let me do this. Let me do this. I'll deny you three times, right? We're going to cut ears off. I mean, we're just just wild and crazy, right? And here they are in the light and in the knowledge of the risen Jesus Christ. And we see them together. We see them of one accord. We see them in fellowship and praying. This is a great picture of what the church should be, of what we are and can be, that we could be a body of believers that continue in one accord in prayer and supplication, seeking the will of the Father. In the end of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Have a great week. 
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.